This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Some cars are comfy on the inside but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Sam. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk. And today, one of my favorite guests to have on the show, somebody whose writing I revere to, you know, a very high degree. It's Joe Wolfond. He does features writing over at The Score, and he's co-host of the Pound the Rock podcast with Joseph Cash-Sharo, but mostly Joseph Cash. I think Joey Cash. Is that is is that the name for him? Joey Cash, Joe Cash, just Cash. Any number of those works, I think. I've already I've moved your intro over to somebody else. I've diverted <laughs> attention away from you, but to get it back on you, yes, a terrific writer. This is Joe. Joe, how's it going, man? It's going well. No, I'm I'm like a big time deflector of praise whenever I can, so that that works for me quite well. I think there's um a lot of correlation between people I enjoy and people who are deflectors of praise because I usually overload the uh, the accolades I throw on in these intros and then everybody goes, "Ah, stop. Please don't. God." Yeah, I mean, it's like a simultaneously really nice feeling and also very uncomfortable. Uh, I think that's just true for most people, you know, it's like, um, I don't know, nobody likes to talk about themselves or like you, you, you get an introduction like that and it's like hard to follow it up. You know, you feel you, you've set the bar quite high now. So, yeah, you think somebody's going to say, no, he's not. He's not any of those things. <laughs> I know specifically he isn't that thing. Uh, yeah. You know, I'd rather keep people's expectations low and then potentially meet or exceed them than uh, than have to live up to some uh, highfalutin anyway <laughs> some highfalutin writer guy yeah so i'll swing us into low expectations and meeting them i think it fits quite well i've gamed the podcast to get to this point demar Derozan has been switched over to power forward why has his switch to power forward been more successful than ben simmons the optics of it is it because of that low expectations thing we're talking about i think it has more to do with just the spurs roster construction like i think ben simmons switch to power forward would be a lot easier and make a lot more sense if the sixers had like a really good competent guard and i feel like it's worked for the spurs because like Derek white's been so good and so maybe you know taking damar off of the ball a little bit more uh you know playing him in a position where the the deficiencies in his game, the, the lack of three-point shooting, 
isn't as much of a problem. Um, you know, he's able to go up against maybe some bigger and slower players and just be a little bit more judicious uh, with his shot selection and not have to kind of commandeer the offense as much. And, like, I think that that could work out really well for the Sixers. If the Sixers had gone out at some point and gotten, like, a high-end point guard and then moved Ben Simmons to power forward, uh, then I think their roster starts to make a lot of sense. But just saying Ben Simmons is a power forward now, and, I mean, look, Shake Milton, I think, is a fine player. He's had a really nice season. Good for him. But I think, you know, down the stretch of close games and high leverage, is, is Shake Milton the guy that you want to be handling the ball? I'm not so sure. He got picked in the backcourt a couple times, too. Like, the bringing the ball up the court yeah. is maybe... Well, there, there are problems with it. Is there a point guard you see in the NBA that is kind of not a, of a lower tier, but that you think fits nicely on Philly that they'll ever be able to get, just with how wonky their roster construction is? Um, I mean, I'm... Like... Is this somebody who I guess is like theoretically going to be available in the next couple of years, or it's just sort of more pie in the sky? Like, who would the ideal point guard for this roster be? If you can think of somebody who might be available, then obviously that's much better. But pie in the sky is also that's also just fine. Um, I mean, pie in the sky, like Lowry would be absolutely perfect. I thought that for a while, and I remember I think it, it, he was a free agent in 2017. And there was talk of mutual interest there. And I was both terrified of that happening, but also, like, would have been happy for him because I think the Sixers probably, I don't know about probably, but I think there's a decent chance they would have won a championship by now if they'd actually gone out and signed him. Um, Like, just his ability to work on or off the ball, like, how smart he is and how good he is at getting guys the ball in the right spots. Um, I don't think, you know, Embiid would have had any trouble, you know, getting the ball in the mid post area. Uh, like Lowry's entry passes are great. His pocket passes are great. And I think, um, you know, oftentimes like the issue with that Sixers offense is like they, they really struggle even to just like get Embiid the ball in the first place. Like some teams will zone up against them and they struggle to even enter the ball in the middle of the zone, even though they've got this like nine foot tall behemoth standing in the middle. Um, I think he would have been a perfect fit. Uh, I think, I mean, if they, instead of sort of going after, like, Al Horford um, this past offseason, if they'd gone after, like, Kemba, I think Kemba would have been a really good fit there. I mean, anybody who's, like, a threat to pull up off of the dribble, um, who's a a high-end playmaker and a good ball handler and, you know, can play off of the ball as well. Because I do think it it does behoove Simmons to have the ball in his hands a good deal um, because, you know, he's not really providing a ton of off-ball value. But, uh, for, you know, to, to have somebody who can kind of organize their offense in the half court and is also going to be able to run pick and roll and be a threat to pull up. Um, I just think a player like that who, who's as effective playing on or off the ball um, and obviously, you know, a, a defender who can sort of fit their team concept at that end of the floor. So um, I don't know. I mean, if if they had any kind of cap room whatsoever, like I, they would potentially be a team that might go after Fred Van Vliet this summer. Um I think, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe Drew Holiday, who's going to be available in, like, 2021. I just, I, I don't know that it's going to be possible for them now because they're, they're, like, really locked into those long-term deals for Harris and Horford. And I don't see a way that they're going to be able to move either one of those guys for, like, a meaningful upgrade. I'm going to ask you to answer two questions. And, and thank you for that answer, by the way. But we'll move on to these two things. Which is... 
a bigger front office gaffe. The Kings not drafting Luca <laughs> or the Timberwolves signing Jeff Teague instead of Kyle Lowry. That's the first <laughs> question. The second question, would the 76ers had won the chip last year if they had gotten Gallinari instead of Harris? Wow. Um, okay, so I, the, the Kings gaffe still has to be the bigger one. I mean, I, like how the Wolves would have been pretty good with, with Towns, Butler, and Lowry. Yeah, that team would have been really good. Uh, but But I still think... As like that's that that's still like a kind of shorter term window, whereas like the difference between having Mar- Marvin Bagley and Luka Doncic for you know with basically seven eight years of team control is so monumental. I don't think you can really put those decisions in the same galaxy, but definitely a miserable decision by the Wolves front office to go after Teague instead of Lowry. And I don't know, man. I like I I always feel like. Maybe maybe it's Lowry and Butler's destiny to eventually play together, and maybe it'll just happen late late in their careers. But I think that would be super fun. Um, yeah, they're two of the funniest guys in the league for sure. They 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 seem to get the optics of what's going on. They play they play a really really cerebral game both on and off the court. They seem to get it. I just think they would love playing together, and like they're about the same things. They're assholes in the same kind of way, um, and I mean. Maybe not entirely. I guess like Butler's have some run-ins with teammates in a way that Lowry hasn't really. I think Lowry's typically been beloved of teammates, and Butler's maybe been beloved by a certain kind of teammate and not another. Um, but I, I do think they would really enjoy playing together. And I, like you said, they're both very smart, cerebral players. And yeah, so the second part of the question, uh, it's it's hard for me to square just because. Like, I don't think the Sixers were actually as close to the Raptors as that series indicated. Like, everybody looks at the fact that it came down to a a buzzer-beating shot in a Game 7, where I think a lot of people feel if it had gone to overtime, the Sixers would have won. I think members of the Raptors have even said as much. And that has given people this idea that, like, the Sixers were a couple of, you know, bounces, four bounces away from winning a championship. But... I don't necessarily think that that's true. I think the Raptors have like an uncharacteristically poor shooting series and that skewed the results a little bit. And I'm not convinced that the Sixers would have beaten the Bucks. Maybe they could have beaten that banged up Warriors team in the finals. Um, obviously, like Embiid would have been a huge problem for that Warriors team. Uh, and, and Harris was quite bad in that series against the Raptors. So you swap him out for Gallo, who's a considerably more efficient scorer, maybe a slightly worse defender, but... Uh, the difference, I guess, is more negligible. That's I do think that's a better team. Is that team winning the championship? I'm going to say no. Good answer. I've long held the belief that if they had gotten Gallo instead of Harris, they would have won last year. For some reason, I am very convinced of that. But you are a features writer, and so there was a very large feature you wrote. And shortly before you released said feature, your very large and very impressive piece on floaters... You were on this podcast, and an off-the-cuff comment of mine caught your attention because it was about Darius Garland's floater. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I didn't expect that to get any attention at all. Little did I know that I was speaking to the Writing Sphere's resident expert on floaters. You cited the dramatically dropping defenses as a precursor for the spike in floater usage in your piece. 
Do you see a potential floater connoisseur lying in the shadows for the Raptors? A version of Pascal Siakam who sliced into the lane. A downhill Powell who skirted a top-locking Wesley Matthews. Anything of the sort. I do think it should be Powell. Like, that to me makes the most sense because he is probably the best Raptor at just kind of knifing into the lane. And I don't know, maybe not just because he he actually is really good at getting all the way to the basket. Like, maybe Fred's one who would actually benefit from it more because he... Man, it's... Fred, when he finishes, it always looks so impressive that I think... You know, I do think he's improved in this regard, but people have this idea in their heads that he's an incredible finisher because anytime he does it, it like takes a, a level of mastery that is, you know, to the naked eye looks really wild. And then you look at his numbers and it's like, you know, relative to league average, he's still quite a poor finisher and I think gets his shot blocked more than just about anybody in the league. Um, so for him, making use of that in between space, I think would be super valuable. Whereas like Powell, it gets into the middle a lot and I do think you know having an effective floater would be helpful for him but he's also quite good at just getting all the way to the rim and obviously this season has been unbelievable at finishing there so um yeah I think with Fred it's the one also that I think I've noticed the most where when he is going up against a drop coverage and he he gets run off the three-point line and can't make it all the way to the rim oftentimes he's just sort of pulling the ball back out um and eating some clock whereas if he had that shot in his bag uh, I think it would be available to him so frequently and would just make his offensive game that much more well-rounded. Yeah, that's something I've been... I think I'm lower on Fred than a lot of Raptors writers. So, And it's usually tied, in my mind, to how he handles the middle of the offense. And he's been so good at pushing in transition all the time, being kind of effortless in that way and just always pushing forward, really maximizing his off-ball strengths, and getting better marginally at pick and roll play and that kind of stuff. But still, as you said, and as you mentioned in the piece, getting into the middle of the floor is kind of hairy for him. It doesn't work out that well. And as you say, there is this sentiment that he is like, he's got a bag, man. He can finish around the rim like Kyrie. Whereas just because Fred double clutches on like every single layup and like goes like opposite body, like and he'll be like sprawled out and stuff does not mean that. Like, he does have a bag, yes, but it's not a particularly, I don't know, well-made bag. Like, the stitching is coming loose towards the bottom <laughs> corner, change falls out and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how he's going to work in the middle of the floor because I think that it would, to use a term you used, well, not really a term, <laughs> a word you used earlier, behoove. It would behoove him to figure that out because as as you mentioned he does have to reset a lot of possessions that way is is there a roadmap for him in that way because there isn't a guard on the roster to mentor or anything like that there's there's very little precedent for the raptors yeah i'm not sure i think it it would probably just have to come from him deciding that that's something he wanted to do and i at some point in the season like this didn't make it into the piece but when i was working on it i did ask nick nurse about it um because at the time, and I, like I haven't looked it up since then, but at the time, I think the Raptors were last in the league in shots taken from like the short mid range or what you might call floater range. And Fred at that time had hit like, you know, something like eight, 10, two point jumpers outside of the restricted area. 
And so I asked Nick whether that was something he wanted to see his guards doing more of. And he was basically like, no, <laughs> like he didn't, that's not really part of their offense. And he, he said like, if, if there was a guy who was, you know, really confident at it, really good at it, and could do it in such a way that it kind of tilted the math uh, in their favor and, and made it an efficient shot, then he'd be happy for them to do it. But because there wasn't anybody really like that on the roster, then it wasn't a priority. So I don't know that, Nick is kind of going to Fred and saying, look, I think this is something you should add to your game. I think if Fred kind of comes back next season and he's worked on it over the off season and um, suddenly he's banging in floaters that, you know, like over a point per possession, then I think nurse will be happy for him to explore that. Powell, as you mentioned, probably one of the better options for this season. He does have that right to left, the little sidestep. It looks a lot like what DeMar does and then kind of pops it up there. Pascal is interesting because he doesn't usually float the ball, but especially last year when it felt like everything he threw at the rim, it was just a magnet to the bottom of the bucket. He had leaners that he could throw off the glass or just go straight at it. And when he was coming downhill, he could kind of pop from like 9 to 13, 14 feet, just kind of throw the ball up there. And so I wonder if that's something that will come back. If, you know, if he's getting into when I was looking at his his tape for this season, looking at his games against the Bucks, when he's getting downhill, he wasn't often going to the mid-range. It was not a very popular thing for him to do, but maybe something we'll see in the playoffs. I'm not super sure. It is, as you mentioned in the piece, it is still not typically in vogue for a lot of players, but left to some specialists like CJ McCollum or James Harden. Do you, do you watch any football? Uh, not really anymore. I did maybe like a few years ago, but I haven't watched for a while. Okay. So a few years ago, maybe the read option would have still been very, very popular. Are you aware of that play? It's where the quarterback can either hand it off to the running back or keep it himself. Yeah. And based based on how, no, no, the play action is when you fake the play like the, the the call is a definitive play action is when you fake the run and you pull the ball back and you go into a passing play. A read option is when typically the quarterback is deciding to hand the ball to the running back or keep it himself to run. And usually they're splitting either side of the offensive line. So it can either go right with the running back, let's say, or left with the quarterback. And then they usually give it to like really athletic quarterbacks like Cam Newton uh, Michael Vick, Lamar Jackson, Robert Griffin III was really popular for it. And I think it's the NFL's version, or the NBA has the floater lob version of that. It's just like that ability to make the read in real time is super impressive to me. Yeah, and I like like I wrote in the piece, I think there, there are kind of like a, a few young guards who have come into the league as both really good floater shooters and, and really special passers. And they have made a lot of hay um, getting into the middle. And, you know, if a team's playing drop coverage and the big for whatever amount of time essentially has to play one on two, uh, it's just really easy to disguise it um, where, you know, the floater and the lob look very similar. And whether it's Luca, uh, Trey Young, John Morant, like all of those guys, really good floater shooters. And, Ultimately, you know, the defender, I think, is going to prioritize uh, keeping contact with the role man and not allowing that 
that lob pass to go up, but those guys are good enough floater shooters that to not contest the floater at all is going to give them a pretty good chance to score. And I think that puts the the kind of dropping big in a pretty compromised position. Yeah, when you were watching it, did any players who, like for example, James Harden, I have seen a lot of his tape and I genuinely cannot tell when it's the floater and when it's the the lob pass. And it, it borders on he's deciding while in air and he's so good at the adjustment that he can just either shoot or throw the lob pass. Do you think that is predetermined for a lot of players going up, or do you think they're actually that changeable in air to be able to make the shot and lob at any point in time? Um, I, I think that, that it's probably adaptable, like, because I, it just, I guess, feels like a sort of very routinized shot where... Um, if they have to make that in-air adjustment, like the motion, like it's such a similar sort of motion you're taking off off of one foot, like you're close enough to the hoop that if you have to make that adjustment, it's not going to totally throw off your mechanics. So I do think you can make those reads on the fly. I know I've said before, I think John Morant is like maybe the best in-air decision maker in the league. So I have no doubt that he's kind of like, taking off off a of one foot, not necessarily knowing until the last second whether he's going to throw a pass or whether he's going to put up a floater. Um, and Doncic the same, I think, is just like a really, really good on-the-fly decision maker. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if like the majority of the time they were just uh, going into that motion with both options available and not necessarily picking between one or the other. Yeah, uh, certainly impressive. What, what would uh, G League tryout participant Joe Wolfon do if he was would that be an easy adaptation for you no uh no not at all I'm a really bad uh in-air decision maker like and it's I have a really bad habit because I'm quite short um of of leaving my feet before I pass oftentimes just because I need to uh in order to like see the passing angle and so that's just become habit for me. It's a, it's a really bad habit that I'm trying to break. But yeah, I like when I get in the air and like the, the pass that I was intending to make gets taken away, like I panic and end up throwing the ball away the majority of the time. 2011 DeMar DeRozan. That's your comp is what it sounds like. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, even that would be flattering me quite a bit. Uh, I've I've. I've my NBA comp that I've given myself in the past, I think, is TJ McConnell. But honestly, McConnell's had a really nice season, and he's I don't think I can use that anymore. He's gotten so good at, like, those poke, Like, he goes, like, full speed and then just goes, like, straight up and down on those jumpers. It's, like, quite impressive. Yeah, that is something I've had to deal with in my life is that in high school, you're, you're like, a, a scoring guard, I think. And, and I was. Like, I scored, I played pick and roll, I did all that kind of stuff. And then... Just how it is with pretty much every white point guard, you you have to play good defense. So then you turn into kind of like a lunch pail guy, and yeah. then we're all compared to T.J. McConnell basically. <laughs> like there's you can't escape the archetype. That's who you are now. Like you play against guys who are significantly better than you. Like uh, for example, I've played with a lot of the guys, not pr- like on their team, but just hooping with a lot of like the CEBL guys from the Saskatoon Rattlers or Saskatchewan Rattlers. And you play against those guys, and you're like, oh, why would I even dribble the ball? Like, right. I'm here to play defense and, like, smack the floor. And then, you know, the transformation's complete. It's like Jeff Goldblum in the fly, except you're now TJ McConnell, you know? 
yeah, that reference went over my head, sadly. But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, once upon a time it was Luke Ridenour and now it's TJ McConnell. And I, I mean, those are the archetypes for sure. Never Grayson Allen, though. Cross your fingers that it's never Grayson Allen. No. Um, yeah, no, you'd have, you have to like adopt some dirty tricks if you want that to be your comp. Yeah, you got to be a tricky dude. Well, on to the next. You're one of my favorite guests, Joe. So I'm introducing a tradition. And since this happened last time, we'll, we'll keep following it. It's called Make Something Basketball into Something Tennis for Joe. <laughs> so the question is, what is the tennis equivalent of the floater? Ah, uh, okay. Um, I think it's got to be the drop shot. Like, that's, you know, it's something that kind of really, it can be very effective, but it's not always a high percentage play. And in order to pull it off effectively, you really got to have feathery touch. And it's, in the NBA, like, it requires, I think, a lot of deceleration. Like, the game is moving so fast, but in order to get that floater off and get it to go down and do it, you know, in a way that is under control, you need to kind of moderate your steps, uh, decelerate as you're, as you're going into that motion. And so being able to sort of change speeds is really important. And in tennis, it's like to, to pull off a good drop shot, you really want to be able to do it while the other player is like well behind the baseline. So they're not going to be able to catch up to it. And that usually means, you know, you're having like a big, heavy baseline exchange. The ball is moving quite fast and you need to be able to essentially just like take all of the pace off of the ball, which, um, you know, you got to have really good hands in order to do that. And it's super tough to pull off. But if, if you can do it consistently, then it's very effective. Who who are the John Morants and the Luka Doncic's of the the TPA? <laughs> the ATP. <Or> ATP. <laughs> yeah, sorry. TPA, the that's like a what is that a calculus for some sort of uh that's like an analytic or something. I can't remember what it was. T- total points added. Yeah, total points added. There you go. You've just um, got all the answers for me, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I think so yeah, I mean it's Federer is absolutely the best um pretty much of all time. He's got the best hands. Um, he is the most deceptive, like, you know, and his ability to, um, like the deception is the point, which is I, another reason I think that, um, that it correlates sort of with the floater is you really are trying to make it look like a typical ground stroke until the absolute last second. And I think Federer disguises it the best. He hits the best drop shots. His, his hands are the quickest and the softest. And so, yeah, he's absolutely number one. Nadal hits really, really good drop shots. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, like, on the women's side, Angie Kerber hits fantastic drop shots. It's just, like, the, the players who sort of have the best hands, a lot of times um, it's, like, um, players who sort of uh, are, are more used to, like, playing at the net. It's, like, a little bit more of an old-school style, but, like, they work on their hands maybe a little bit more. And um, Federer is certainly that guy. He's more of like an all-court player than I think a lot of the guys who came up in his generation who are sort of strict power baseliners. One last, just to quell my interest, is an ace, a dunk, or a three-pointer? Which is that? (laughs) Um, I think an ace is a dunk because it's 
you know, I mean, whatever. There's no there's no point in tennis that is worth more than just one point, but it is sort of like an exclamation. <laughs> it is an exclamation point in the way that a dunk is. It's like you're making a statement and you're kind of sending a message. And it's also, I mean, there's literally nothing that the other player can do. Like you're just blasting a serve past them. And it's sort of that way with dunks too sometimes where, you know, whether you're going up for a lob or you're on a fast break or it's just like a big guy who's sort of, you know, um, put a smaller defender in the basket before dunking over them. Like there's oftentimes just like nothing really that you can do about it and you just sort of have to tip your cap and move on. Okay. And then one last question. Who is Andy Roddick's NBA comparison then? Um, Okay. So, Think about like a player who had a really good career, but also in some ways maybe a little bit disappointing because Roddick won the U.S. Open when he was like, I want to say 21, maybe 22, but like super young in his career. Seemed like he was just going to be an absolute prodigy who went on to win a ton of Grand Slams and then never won one again because Federer arrives and, um, you know, Roddick is suddenly relegated to and also ran. So I'm trying to think of somebody who was on that trajectory, like won a championship really early, went on to, you know, have a, a really good career, but that somehow in hindsight looks like a little bit disappointing. I don't know. Does anyone like fit that description that you can think of? I was going to say, if it doesn't, if it's not like specifically a championship and the ace is the dunk, then like your highlights are at the start of your career and that's that like Vince comes to mind mm. although Vince didn't have the championship but he does have the the early start to his career that looked like he was going to be the next huge big thing uh lots of fanfare has the dunks and ace crossover but as far as the championship no I no, can't think of a guy a good, who was that's like, a good comp though and I think it works both like as far as those those guys also being just like pretty well liked um and well-spoken and um, just sort of consummate pros, even though Vince wasn't, you know, entirely that early in his career. That is sort of what he became. And they're both very stylish players. Like Vince in his prime was so stylish and and erotic as well. Like he had this big, exaggerated serving motion. Um, So actually, I like that comp. That's a good one. He's like a right-handed tomahawk, except it's a serve. But I... (laughs) I have more floater questions for you, actually, Joe. That's okay. basically, you didn't know, but that's the only reason I brought you on, just to floaters and tennis. But what do you think about the floater for big men, and especially those who catch on the short roll? Brandon Clark and Rashawn Holmes are two guys I really mm-hmm. like in this in this facet, but what do you think about that play going forward? I love it, and I was actually going to say, like, you know, when you were talking about Pascal and whether that can be part of his game, I feel like working in like some floaters off of the short roll for him would be awesome. Like, cause they don't really use him as a role man all that frequently. And I, I don't know. I sort of think that they should, um, as much as I like the inverted pick and rolls with, with him handling and one of Lowry and Van Vliet screening, those plays have obviously been super successful, but, um, I sort of feel like early in the season, they were going to it more. I specifically remember that game against the magic when he was kind of, trying to go one-on-one against Jonathan Isaac and getting swallowed up. And at the end of that game, they kind of went to the Lowry 
uh, Siakam pick and roll with with Siakam setting the screen and rolling, and he hit a couple of those short roll floaters. Um, and one, I think, free throw line jumper to just put that game on ice. I think that'd be really valuable for him. Um, Brandon Clark, like you mentioned, is one of the best in the league at it already. It's pretty crazy. Like the Grizzlies, just like two rookies come into the league as like two of the best floater shooters. And I think they were by far the most effective floater shooting team in the league this season. So uh, a bright future for them in the floater department. Um, Jokic, uh, I think, had the highest points per possession on floaters this season. And has been in like the 90th percentile for each of the last four years. He obviously just has, he's not always doing it on the short roll. Like sometimes he is just um, maybe sort of in that mid post area. And it's what's so great about Jokic in the post is like he doesn't, he can overpower guys um, and really just establish a super deep post position and flip in a layup. But he also doesn't need to. Like if he gets within, you know, 10, 12 feet of the basket. He has such great touch that he can just get to that little push shot and put it in. So uh, it's it can be a super valuable weapon. Um, Holmes Holmes is really good at doing it um, on the short roll. And I think he he's maybe like the guy who gets it off the quickest on the short roll. Like He's got a funky release point. It's a really interesting shot. Yeah, and like I just, I just feel like the defense sort of never times it right and never fully sees it coming. Um, so it's, it can definitely be a valuable weapon because, you know, a lot of the time, like on that short roll, you're not going to be able to get all the way to the basket. And if a team is, you know, sort of playing it two on two and the big is able to, you know, do a good job corralling the ball handler and, and retreating to the roll man, like, you know, some of the best drop defenders in the game, if you think about like a, Brooke Lopez or Rudy Gobert, like those guys are very good at at kind of corralling two guys at once, and you end up catching the ball some eight to ten feet away from the hoop, and don't have like an obvious next pass to make. Then that's a really good weapon to have in your back pocket. Nikola Jokic is to floaters what Paul Millsap is to defense, with that always <laughs> above the 90th percentile thing. And secondly, the point you made about Pascal. I found, and Lewis found this too when he wrote his big piece on the Lowry and Siakam pick and roll, is that Siakam is really, really good as a screener, although it just doesn't happen a lot. And when I was going through all of his game tape, as you said, he was able to close out a game. But during that game too, in the early fourth quarter of that Magic game, he was they ran it three times in a row with Terrence Davis as the ball handler, and it oh, still worked two out of yeah. three times. Yeah, it was. he found pacing with Fred with Terrence and with Kyle during the year on that play. And so like this is something I talked about with Matt Moore last year on the podcast. And Matt Moore was saying, well, maybe Giannis doesn't want to be a screener. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. just because they're good at something doesn't mean they want to do it. So I wonder if that's maybe a bit of a stipulation with Pascal is that he doesn't like screening because, you know, it's not that fun to be a screener. And if you don't screen all the time, it is actually hard to find the pacing, like, on the pick and roll. I don't know if you've ever set, like, an intentional, I'm the screener, you're going to get wide, and I'm going to find the lane, like, right to the rim as a screener. But it's not as easy as it looks. You can't no, just, like, yeah, set the screen and then, like, turn. It's it's incredibly difficult, I think, to find the pacing. So I wonder if Pascal doesn't like that that much because I can't it, – it's been very successful, and it put it gives defenses fits. 
I don't think I've ever rolled to the basket off of a ball screen. I, I pop every single time. <laughs> like, again, because I am super short, so it almost seems like there's no point. Like, I'm just not good at finishing around the hoop. So uh, my instinct is always, like, after I set that screen to just sort of uh, drift back to the three-point line. Um, so I definitely can appreciate that that the timing of it is difficult. And um, even something as simple as just, like, knowing when to release that screen is is tough like you got to make sure that it sticks but then you also have to like immediately dart into that open space and give the ball handler a target um so it is something that requires repetition and a comfort level that you know maybe siakam just doesn't have i just it seems like the times that they've used him in that role they have been successful and um maybe it's a question of will i think you know from what i can gather about pascal he seems more or less amenable to whatever he just wants to improve Mm -hmm. in whatever way he can so I think that would surprise me a bit if he was just sort of fundamentally opposed to doing it. But I do, I take your point. Like, you know, there has to be buy-in on the part of the player and they have to be comfortable doing it a lot in order for that to be a big part of their offense. Yeah, getting a good screener is kind of like... Playing Pokemon growing up, there were those caves where you needed the Flash HM and otherwise you're kind of walking in the dark. But once you get the flash HM, the whole cave lights up and you know where to go with everything. I feel like a good screener in a game does that for a ball handler. Like you've come off a screen and the guy really knows how to set it. You just feel like the whole world has opened up in front of you. You've got the pacing going downhill. They're rolling. Your defender's behind you. It's it's incomparable. It's one of the best feelings in the world, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Dame Lillard is so happy to have Yusuf Nurkic back in screening for him right now. Like, I think that's been a not insignificant part. And I know, like, Lillard's been unbelievable in the pick and roll all season. Like, one of the, maybe the single best high volume Four pick and roll ball season I think. ever. Um, but yeah, yeah, like, I think a, a big part of what he's been doing in the bubble has been having Nurkic back there and just, like, carving out so much space for him with those screens. Yeah, one of the most intriguing things about dame is the well i'm just the best pick and roll ball handler of all time now like he he just went and he did it and that was he's gone through seasons where okay is hassan your partner is Nurkic your partner is collins your partner is myers leonard your partner well the points per possession is through the roof with everybody just because it's dame like he is he is the underlying factor and overwhelming factor it, like he could have a pylon setting the screen obviously it helps that Nurkic is Nurkic a, is very good. A gigantic game is pylon. so filthy that he could have, yes, a very large pylon. Um, they're trying to block the whole road with it. It's been manufactured specifically for this one spot because these kids keep coming in and moving all the pylons. So we've created an even heavier pylon that cannot be moved by children. And Dame has used his, his brain and his muscles to move the pylon onto the court. And he's using it uh, at will as a, as a prop for his pick and roll game. But, Regardless, I I watched quite a bit of film for my top 100 list, and T.J. Warren was one of my favorite people to watch because he's such a savvy scorer. And in my write-up, I said he had the potential to do more because the the Pacers' ceiling was going up, and that's because I thought Oladipo and Sabonis would be back in tow. But I had no idea this was coming, and I thought I had a pretty good beat on him. You know even more about the Pacers than I do, and ostensibly, by extension, TJ Warren. What the hell happened? Do you have anything to subscribe to what's going on here? 
So I think it does start with Sabonis not being there because with Sabonis there, and I mean, I love Sabonis as a player, but like their offense, and I was really worried about what was going to happen to their offense, frankly, without him there because it's been so reliant on him to be a hub. Like he leaves the team in touches by far. Uh, he leaves the entire league in elbow touches. He, I think, was tied with Gobert for the league lead in screen assists. It's like everything they were doing at the offensive end was sort of rotating around him. Like they ran a lot of elbow offense through him, um, and he, you know, could be a playmaker on the short roll. He made a lot of plays out of the post. Um, so many of their shooters are kind of reliant on his off-ball screens. Doug McDermott, in particular, so. I was concerned about what that was going to look like offensively with him taken out of the mix. And they really have had to reorient things. And the the upshot is that TJ Warren, who they were using, you know, primarily as a play finisher for most of the season, is now, you know, getting to be an initiator, spending more time on the ball. Like, he's, he's still doing a lot off of the ball. Like, they're running those staggered pin downs for him. Uh, and, um, but but he's also, like, just showing these kind of chops as a pull-up shooter that I wasn't particularly sure that he had. I think he shot 60 pull-up threes the entire season, like less than one a game. And in the bubble, he's shooting something like four a game and and hitting like 45% of them. And maybe that's a little bit of an aberration, but I think it's clear that he has, uh, you know, a little bit more... um, skill as an initiator than it initially seemed and so kind of taking all of those possessions that they were running through Sabonis and transferring them over to TJ Warren really hasn't impacted their offense at all and I think you know for the entire season they have been far better offensively with only one of Turner and Sabonis on the floor and so especially for like a wing scorer like Warren when he's playing the four as he primarily is right now and the guy at the five is Turner, who's basically just a spot-up guy who's spacing the floor for him. Uh, I think he just is getting like a lot of room to operate. And that's something that's probably a lot more difficult for him when he's playing the three and Sabonis and Turner are both there. Yeah, I've always liked guys who are very, very changeable in air. Like TJ Warren, Lewis Assman talked about it in the our minute basketball piece from last week where we were talking about your own worst enemy that included the Kings, De'Aaron Fox, and uh, DeMar DeRozan and TJ Warren. But he's so lithe. Like, just as long as he's square up top, he can his body can go any which way. He can be leaning almost at 180 degrees, like doing the Superman. But as long as his wrist is cocked above his forehead, like, the shot will be okay. Like, he's so changeable and so slick getting to a spot. So I always wondered, you know, how can those guys, because they have such a talent for, and DeMar is this way too. They have such a talent for obviously that touch is incredible that they can change so much that once that translates to be on the arc, which obviously for TJ, it, it has because he definitely was not a shooter from outside the arc until his last year in Phoenix, which was pretty good. I thought that he had translated into a, a decent three-point shooter at the very least. And then better again this year. Just, I love watching those guys and seeing when it finally clicks. Because it's like the MJ Warren moniker 
is not misapplied, or at least doesn't <laughs> seem like it's misapplied for the bubble. Like in the bubble, he's MJ Warren forever. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the he he's still not showing a ton as a playmaker for other guys, but I do think what's what's been so great about his development is like he came into the league with this very polished inside the arc game where he's got great footwork and he's a good mid-range shooter. You want to talk about guys who shoot floaters. I mean, TJ Warren probably shoots some of the longest floaters in the league. Like, you know, he'll shoot them from like the, from like the nail, basically. Like he, he has incredible range um, on that shot and he's a great finisher at the rim. So like he had this, really you know effective two-point game where he was a a very effective scorer and just didn't have the three-pointer and now he's worked the three-pointer into his game and it's just made him like a pretty devastating three-level scorer um and now it's to the point where you know whether he's on ball or off ball um you really have to pay attention to him you can't go under screens against him and i think you know you saw like in the sixers game for instance when uh they tried to play that pin down by top locking him and he was able to just cut back door and get to the rim and Simmons went under a couple screens and he pulled up off the dribble and just wet threes in his eye. Like he's now gotten to a point where he's able to score in a variety of ways. Um, and that's without mentioning the the leap that he's made on defense this season. So I think, you know, the one thing to me that, like I said, hasn't really come around is the playmaking and maybe that's the next thing to come but i'm just pretty impressed with the player that he's turned himself into yeah he i always liked him a lot and because demar Derozan was my favorite player and i thought that tj warren had a similar similar type of gambit inside the arc like he was he's just so slick in there and could operate and do so many different things but yeah he's he's been one of the most enjoyable i guess facets of the bubble so far there's still lots of time left provided that everyone stays healthy and not everything goes sideways. But the last question I have for you, Joe, while you're on this podcast, I'm sure I'll have many more through this lifetime, but what are your thoughts on the league's larger-than-life front courts? Surgeon Mark, Bull and Plumley. there's some big ones out there. What are your thoughts on them? I love it. I mean, I think at any time you can get um, – like a variety in the way that teams are playing. If you get a certain snapback to various trends, um, a team that is sort of cutting against the grain and going in a different direction, I, I just think that's good for the league and good for uh, the, the product visually, tactically. And so that's, you know, part of the reason that I was interested in writing about the floater is because it is, you know, the rise of floaters and, and they, like floater usage is up around the league this year. Like part of that is in response to the exaggerated drop coverages that teams are playing and the fact that both defensively and offensively teams have become sort of obsessed with Mori ball and either taking exclusively threes and layups or preventing exclusively threes and layups. So that's why I was interested in that. And like, I also wrote a piece about the power forward position and you know, the, the kind of rise of two big looks this year and that to me is sort of a a snap back to this idea of small ball where i think um when when people think about what small ball is in the nba they often think of teams that downsize at the five and play super small that way but i think the the biggest change over the last few years has been what teams have done 
at the four and so many teams now using the four as an additional wing position. So when all these teams start using it kind of as a big position, I just think that's an interesting tactical shift and one that the data is kind of mixed, to be honest. I think that for the most part, what you see is, um, you know, trend wise is that those lineups are quite good defensively, but struggle offensively. And you're just, you're always making a trade-off of some kind, and you're trying to see whether your size, on you know, on the offensive glass, protecting the rim, can make up for the disadvantage uh, in terms of quickness and presumably uh, shooting ability. Even though you know a lot of those big, big lineups do have effective spacers in them, um, but I just think it's a it's a nice bit of tactical variety. And some of those looks have been super successful. Some of them haven't. But I just think it's a nice antidote to this idea that, like, the answer to any team's problems in the playoffs is just going to be to downsize. And I, I'm not really with this idea that traditional centers just get off, get played off the floor in the playoffs. Um, I still think size has a lot of value in the league. And I think watching particular teams sort of explore that has been really interesting. Yeah, that's why I picked Philly to win the chip prior to the season because I thought that this was going to be like the renaissance era of the big man, that they were just going to overload. And it ended up being true that that would work to some degree in the regular season, except it happened with the Lakers who went jumbo and just put all of their creation, you know, they're just like LeBron, you have to create everything all the time. And if you do, we'll be really good because we'll be super overwhelming defensively. And he did. And then obviously there's been shortcomings with that in the bubble. Although if that will, you know, extend to the playoffs, I'm not, I'm not super sure. But I do, I do agree. It's an astute point that the power forward position remains the most changed from all this. Even though the from the outside you might have thought, well, it's probably the center position because everybody talks about small ball and how it's radically changed those positions. But it is, like you said, mostly a wing player coming in, a Rudy Gay to the four a DeMar DeRozan to the four. These are guys who might have, well, DeMar definitely, but Rudy even playing the two at certain points in his career. So it's interesting to see how it shifted. But more than anything, like you say, size is still super important. And the idea that you have to shrink, I think, was always kind of false. It was more that you have to play skilled players. And then you look at Jokic, the 90th percentile floater guy. You have Bull Bull throwing fastballs across the court like Denver and and Miles Plumley or sorry Mason Plumley is is not unskilled I think he has like chops as a passer and he's he's certainly not like a Jokic level guy but I think that they have some very intriguing pieces in their front court and the Raptors as well with Serge Ibaka who apparently now after this season is a short roll passer who's good Pascal Siakam doesn't really have a definitive two-man game with any of the bigs like Serge, or sorry, Mark is his favorite screener, of course, but we're still waiting on something to progress there. But the Raptors, the the Nuggets showing skilled bigs doing things, and then the Lakers kind of showing mostly with their Javal and Dwight platoon mixed with one of, well, usually with AD showing that like sometimes just size can do enough. But we're seeing limiting factors on both ends, I think. Yeah, I, I think... You know, one thing that's really important is if you have two bigs out there, and it doesn't always have to be a traditional big, like there are 
power forwards, even small forwards in some cases, who can be really good rim protectors. But it just gives you the option to, like, if, if you bring one of those bigs high out on the floor, as the Nuggets really like to do with Jokic, um, then you're going to have, like, a capable rim protector and rebounder behind him. And if you're going super small at the four, like, that isn't always the case, and that sort of limits what you're able to do with your big man defensively. And obviously, I think, that, you know, the majority of teams choose to just drop that big man back. But ultimately, like, if you have a really slow-footed big, the idea is just to try and protect that big as much as possible. And one way to do it is to drop him back and just have him play as close as possible to the rim. But another way to do it is just to bring him up high um, so you're you know, whether you're you're hard hedging uh, or you're blitzing, you're sort of keeping him out of switch scenarios where he's going to be left on an island. And you're also keeping him out of scenarios where he's having to defend two players at once and where he's backpedaling and defending in space. And so that's what the Nuggets have chosen to do with Jokic. And that's why I think, you know, they've been surprisingly effective playing Jokic and Plumlee together, even though both of those guys are technically centers. Um, and that's why I think also like Millsap has been so effective for them, because even though he is power forward size, uh, he, I think, plays a lot bigger than that when he's defending on the back end. Um, so I, I just think all that stuff's really interesting. Um, I actually, I have a question for you that that kind of relates to the Sixers in general. Um, and I'm yes. just curious. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on this because, so th- there's a sort of piece of I think accepted NBA wisdom that you need sort of like an off the dribble half court creator in the playoffs um for crunch time and that you know if you if you run the majority of your offense through the post as the six i don't know about the majority but the sixers run a ton of their offense through the post more than any other team in the league as they should because and beats the best post player in the league like i have sort of just like accepted that but I I also like kind of have a hard time explaining sometimes why that is. So what like why do you think it's impossible for the Sixers to just have a crunch time offense that flows through and beat in the post? Like the guy is a magnet for double teams, um, and j- him getting doubled in the post. Like he he's not a terrific passer out of double teams, like on the level of a Jokic, but he's good and bringing two to the ball and. And the things that that opens up elsewhere should be a pretty effective formula. So I don't know. Do you have a, an explanation for why it's like become completely imperative to have like a high end half court off the dribble creator? I think that it's it's just easier to for them to transport themselves around the court. Whereas for Embiid, for example, he has to go find his post position and he mm-hmm. has to wait for the ball. And then the players have to get him the ball there. And the defense can really, really overload that side to try and get that to stop that from happening. As we saw in the All-Star game, this is the play that has the most extreme advantage on the floor at all times. And so the roster construction is a little bit wonky for the 76ers. I think if they're a bit more optimized, I think he's an overwhelming force down there. So for a lot of players, a post-up just doesn't work because it is an easily guarded play, especially for a team like, let's say, you know, Denver or the Raptors who have Marcus All and Jokic in in the post who are big and hard to move and hard to impose your will on down there. And so Embiid kind of has to contend with that if he's playing against those teams 
Valanchunas is another one, for example. Okay. And then you look at Valanchunas, who also is hard to body. <laughs> yeah, Valanchunas is hard to body in the post. And so the post-up is inherently a guarded play. You're not creating, you're not, let's, for example, like coming off a pin down with Norman Powell and you know, you create that separation and then he can curl and go downhill or he can pop, like come hard really off the, off of it for a three-point shot. Or if the defender plays like under it and tries to beat him to the other side, he can kind of slip back. And there's a lot of open options just from that play. The post-up isn't open. So I think for a lot of players, it's it's very limited as far as a play type. But, you know, since that was your question, but as far as we're looking at Embiid, I think that the 76ers legitimately can go to Embiid in the in in crunch time. I think that they should be able to do that. But I think that their defense has to reach its full potential for them to be able to do that too. Because they created what was supposed to be a defensive monstrosity, like this huge beastly defense. And that meant that you could go to Embiid in the post because it's just going to be this very hard to stop, very strong physical offense late game and maybe it won't score at like this really gaudy points per possession but it'll be enough to power through ends of games where Embiid is also on the other side of the floor anchoring the defense and being an absolute monster on that end so I think that's basically the point is like with Embiid I think it can work and I'm a, a huge Embiid fan so maybe that's a little bit optimistic but typically you know it's just a guarded shot and not enough big men are good enough passers and don't see the floor well enough to really manipulate that advantage if they are getting doubled. Because that's like, there's a check, right? Is that A, you have to be good enough with the ball in the post that you warrant a double. If you're going to if you're gonna get the ball in the post, you have to be able to score. If you can score, maybe you'll get the double. If you get doubled, you have to be able to pass. And it's just asking a lot of players who typically have been regarded as and pushed into roles as you're a role man. You defend and you rim run. And there's a lot of players who don't really typically do post-ups anymore. Like, it's a bit of a lost art for some big men. Like, Clint Capella, you know, he flashed in for a baby hook every once in a while. But he's you don't want him posting up with the game on the line. And you certainly don't want him passing out of a double. At least I wouldn't. So I think it's it's limiting in that way. But I have a question for you as well, if you okay. if you have any thoughts to, to cap off what I said. Sure. Okay. You brought up, before we started talking about the post-up thing, about a rim defender. And, and I want to ask you about... So OG Ananobi is a rim protector, I think. It's fair to say that. And Marcus Gasol, Rudy Gobert, Brooke Lopez are paint protectors. Do you agree with these archetypes? Should we start using those terms? Like a rim protector is LeBron James, is OG Ananobi. Are these super impressive help side guys? Bismack Biombo is also a rim protector, but some guys should have the paint moniker, like the paint protector moniker. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're like you're wondering if I think that's an important distinction, or yes, validate me, Joe, please, <laughs> God. <laughs> um, I, no, I, look, I do think that there is a difference and an important difference there. Um, I do you. Uh, I'm thinking about it in terms of Lopez specifically because I I kind of still see Brooke Lopez as more of a rim protector than a paint protector just because I do feel like he will concede like a, a lot of shots in the painted area. Um, just 
like it's in that area sort of between the free throw line and like the charge circle which is like those are the kind of shots that i think the bucks are happy to coax like same thing with the nets and jared allen like those guys do really drop back so far it's not like they can't contest shots you know a little bit further away from the hoop but i just think they're they're more inclined to sit back and wait for somebody to challenge them at the rim and if that player wants to kind of pull up short and shoot a floater or a short mid-range shot then they'll kind of live with that gobert i think gets out on the floor a little bit more and can blow stuff up like all over the place and just sort of deny entry into the paint in the first place um and bead the same thing but i don't know if i would throw like a like a brooke lopez into that category i think to me brooke lopez is still primarily a rim protector and he's he might be the best (laughs) the best rim protector in the league um but I feel like not to say that his role is like simple, like there are a lot of moving parts still in that Bucks offense, but I do think his role is a little bit stripped down compared to like some other bigs like a, like Gobert and Gasol, like guys who um, their responsibilities are a little bit more multifaceted. Yeah, I think that's fair, especially um, <laughs> that's kind of funny. I'm like, Hey, what do you think of this? You're like, yeah, the terminology, it's it's right there. You're just misapplying it. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm happy for you to make a counterpoint, too. I just... Um, no, I I think that's fair. I think you did. I think you did hit on it. Brooke Lopez is meant to hang back at the rim to add a hesitation there so that players kind of sit in that middle area where there is a roving, roaming Giannis Antetokounmpo, just depending on the situation, or a chasing down... Matthews, DiVincenzo, Middleton, Bledsoe, Hill, who, whomever, right? I think that's definitely that's the point to make. But I got a little fancy, and I want to put Broke Lopez in it when I should have said Embiid. <laughs> but I, but I do get your point. Is like the the rim protector is maybe archetypally more of of like a weak side helper, and not necessarily. Um, the big who is kind of quarterbacking the rotations on the back end. And um, just sort of uh, a second layer of defense that's denying penetration after the first wall is breached. I think that's that's definitely what I was trying to say, only more eloquent when you did it. But, Joe, we've been here for an hour. It feels like a, a good a good way to end the podcast. How do you feel? I feel great, man. It's always a pleasure talking hoops with you. Um, always guaranteed to be an interesting conversation. And um, I know you mentioned like the newsletter that you're doing with Lewis before. So I just wanted to say that. I've really enjoyed it, and you guys do a great job. Wow. Thank you very much. You Well, as you know, Lewis and I both enjoy writing a lot, so that, that means a lot from both of us, definitely. But, Joe, the floor is yours. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here? Um, I don't really have anything in particular. I mean, you said it off the top. I, I co-host Pound the Rock. It's the Scores NBA podcast with Joey Cash. Um, we put that out. Uh, once a week, sometimes twice a week. We'll probably have a couple episodes coming up as we gear up for the playoffs. So um, if you're not you know, listening or subscribe to that, then feel free to do so. Um, and you know, my writing is always up at the score on the website or the app. I share most of it uh, on my Twitter page, Joey underscore W. And that's about it. I don't have like any sort of particularly exciting like long-term features in the works like the the couple things we talked about that i worked on throughout this season but um i'll have 
lots of playoff coverage coming up. And uh, if you're inclined, then follow along. Perfect. Joe, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks so much for having me, man. Always a pleasure. And listener, that's the end of the podcast. That's it for you. That's it for me. But whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. We'll get back to your music shortly, but first, did you know that prescription prices are different at different pharmacies? You could literally drive across the street and get a different price. That's crazy. But with GoodRx, you can instantly compare prices at every pharmacy in your neighborhood and save up to 80%. You're probably thinking there's a catch, right? Nope. It's 100% free and can save you money whether you have insurance or not. In fact, it can often beat your copay. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance. Did you know you could shop around for prescription prices? With GoodRx, you can find free coupons at over 70,000 pharmacies and save up to 80%. It's that easy. But don't just take my word for it. Dr. Adam says, I've been telling all my patients about GoodRx. Jacqueline says, my medication was $65 without insurance, but I paid $25. Aubriana says, you don't have to pay full price to live your best life. Couldn't have said it better myself. GoodRx is 100% free. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance. Get really into your favorite shows and movies all in one place with Flex, a 4K streaming box you get free with Xfinity Internet. And get Peacock Premium at no additional cost. Learn more at Xfinity.com slash Flex. Restrictions apply requires postpaid Xfinity Internet excluding Internet essentials. One device included.